This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. It's great to be back here in the studio today. We're away for uh, vacation, oh, not vac- yeah, vacation one week and uh, VBS another week and the birth of a new grandson, but we're here live in the studio today in July of 2023, and we welcome all first-time listeners for the next hour. Where we will be taking people's questions. Maybe there's a particular issue or challenge you're facing in your life or ministry and you'd like biblical counsel on, you can call us. Again, the local 843 exchange is 525-1859, or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. And when you call, we're happy to put you on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. We do give preference to live callers, so we have scores and scores of questions that come in from all over the country, and uh, we eventually try to answer them if we can. We can't get to them all um, in one week, but it seems like you answer three and five more come in, but... Eventually, you'll be emailed if you do email us that your answer was uh, done, and you can in turn listen to it at wagp.net. Well, with that said, Walter, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. All right, Pastor Carl. Our first question comes from Danny out of Graniteville, South Carolina. He writes, I recently listened to a YouTube video from Dallas Theological Seminary of Dr. Stanley Toussaint teaching on prayer. In his presentation discussing Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, He stated that first-century Jews would have translated it to read, Make your name be hallowed. This was in support of his argument that prayer is essentially asking God for things. He took pains to say that he was not discounting thanksgiving or adoration, but strictly speaking, prayer was asking God for things. First, is it accurate that first-century Jews would have translated Matthew 6-9 as given above? And second, is it accurate to say that prayer, strictly speaking, is asking God for things? It's a great question. Uh, Dr. Toussaint was one of my professors at Dallas Seminary. He went home to be with the Lord oh, some years back, and he loved Christ. A great expositor. Um, we had some interesting debates uh, with Dr. Toussaint over different issues. I didn't always see eye to eye with him on every issue, but he, he was a fine, godly man and the head of the Bible Exposition Department when I was there. Uh, It's a good question you're asking, Danny. So here in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, it says um, Jesus is talking about not praying like the pagans. Uh, When you pray, don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't pray like Gentiles who are pagans who just use meaningless repetition uh, so that you're not like them. And then he says, when you pray, ask, or in Luke's account, it says say, and no doubt um, the Lucan account was given on a different occasion in a different setting, and so it's uh, some of the same material, so to speak, but given to a different audience. 
And so people sometimes ask, is it wrong to pray out loud the Lord's Prayer? Certainly not, um, because Jesus said, when you pray, say, and here it says, um, pray then in this way. So it's not only something that can be verbally quoted, and it's never wrong to quote Scripture. Uh, and so this is a section of Scripture many, many people have memorized, uh, but certainly it's more than just a, a prayer that you recite. It's instruction on how to pray. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So we begin by praying to the Father uh, through the Son and in the Spirit. And that's an important uh, perspective to keep in mind. That's not to say that we cannot pray directly to the Holy Spirit or to the Son. Jesus gave us permission to ask him directly. But generally speaking, when you pray, you pray Father. And it's not so much Father God, it's Father. Uh, it's not, he's not an adjective, he's a, a person. And you pray, hallowed be thy name. Or you could render it, may your name be honored. Or may your name be honored as holy, as hallowed. And so I would agree with Dr. Toussaint in the sense that uh, you can render it that way. Uh, and that's certainly how I think it would be understood. Why would it be understood that way? Because he, God already is holy. We're not praying that he'll become more holy. He already is holy. And so um, what we're really, among other things, asking is that we would represent his name. The name of God is an Hebrew idiom for all that God represents. And so, for instance, uh, in John 1, 12, it says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. That is all that it represents. Um, and so Christ is Lord, he's Savior. And, and so the name of God represents God's character, and God's character, among other things, is holy. When Isaiah is given a vision of God, uh, he says, holy, holy, holy. He sees uh, the, those in heaven crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Uh, God, if he's anything, he is holy. And so when we pray, hallowed be your name, we're asking God to really enable us to represent his name well, to represent his character that demands holiness from us. Uh, we are to be holy as he is holy and deserves holiness because God is holy. He's imputed holiness or righteousness to us. The day he saves us, it's called justification. But sanctification is that process where we work that out. So I suppose in this respect, you could say that prayer is asking God um, because when we're praising God or thanking God, we're not adding anything to who he is. But I don't think you can discount that there's different kinds of prayer. There are certainly different words that Paul uses in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, uses five different words that express different aspects of prayer. Some prayer is intercessory. We're not asking God for ourselves, but for other people. Some is direct petition where we have a need and God cares about our need. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. And so, you know, you can carry over in your mind what your need is and share it with other people and, and miss going to the Father directly. And that's what he invites us to do. But then praising God, thanking God, they're actually used interchangeably because some people say, well, we're thanking God, but we're not praising him. Actually, the words are used interchangeably in the Greek New Testament. And really, when you're thanking God, you're praising God. When you're praising God, you're, you're giving gratitude for who he is and what he is like. 
So I don't think um, you can strictly say, though I understand Dr. Toussaint's point, um, and again, I'm not listening to the sermon, but I heard him preach enough. I mean, I had classes with the man, and I know he was a sound expositor. I, I don't think he would be one who would discount that there's Thanksgiving prayer and adoration prayer and confessional prayer and so forth. Um, but again, even in confession, you're asking God for something. And even in the opening of what is called the Lord's Prayer traditionally, or some want to be almost pharisaical, and they say, well, this is the model prayer, and the Lord's Prayer is in John 17. Look, I'm not going to wrangle over silliness. Um, but in either case, it's a great question that Danny asked. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl in today's Babylon, Let's go to the phone lines, Pastor Carl. I believe we have Stephanie. Good morning, Stephanie. You're live with Pastor Carl. Hi. Yes, thank you. Um, thank you so much for helping us, um, Pastor. And my question is, um, I have a friend who is a post-tribulation guy, um, post-tribulation rapture um, guy, and he. one of the reasons that he believes this is because if the marriage supper of the Lamb is happening at the time of the rapture, when the church is raptured, he doesn't think that the people who come to belief during the rapture would be left out of that. So my question is, how do you respond to that? Oh, it's a good question, and I cover this actually in um, my series on the Revelation, and I cover it in a most recent series I did called God's Prophetic Schedule. And so the marriage of the Lamb happens in heaven. The marriage supper of the Lamb happens on the earth when Jesus comes back. And Jesus alludes to this, you know, about uh, people will sit down at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And I think that's a picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb, the marriage supper. And so that's different from the marriage of the Lamb. The marriage takes place when Christ comes back for his bride, the church. And so the church is a unique entity. Uh, the church didn't exist in the Old Testament. There's, there are some people who want to blur uh, that truth, and they say, well, the church was in the Old Testament, and now uh, the New Testament church has replaced Israel. No, the church was not Israel, and Israel's not the church. But with that said, you know, sometimes the marriage supper of the Lamb is pictured as this kind of dreamy table with clouds all around it like we're in heaven. We're actually on the earth when the marriage supper takes place. So um, you, your friend is not entirely wrong, but to come to a post-tribulational position based on that without, even if he, he thought, well, that causes me to scratch my head, there's too many other scriptures that he has to wrangle with. For instance, I'll just give you one. If the rapture of the church happens at the end of the tribulation, then that means we are caught up and we make a U-turn back to the earth. Unless, of course, you discount that Christ will literally reign on the earth for a thousand years. And so there is amillennialism. The amillennialist says there is no literal thousand-year reign of the Messiah. The next event is the second coming. He sweeps us all to heaven. Uh, there's one big judgment, and it's all wrapped up, and that's the end. And again, you have to spiritualize so much Scripture to come to that conclusion. 
And uh, you might want to listen to Friday at this hour. Uh, I'm doing a radio show tomorrow, Stand in the Gap Radio. I do it once a month, and it's on hundreds of radio stations across the nation. And I'm going to be addressing not the issue of the marriage supper of the Lamb, but how do we interpret prophecy as it relates to future issues that have not yet taken place. With that said, uh, clearly, if we go up at the end of the tribulation, makes a U-turn, we all come back in glorified bodies. And if we're all in glorified bodies, who at the end of the thousand-year reign rebels against the Messiah? When you're in a glorified body, you cannot sin. Your salvation is complete. You're like Christ. You'll see him and become just like him in the sense that you'll never be able to sin again. However, if the rapture and the second coming are two distinct events, if we're caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and then a seven-plus-year period unfolds, uh, known as the time of Jacob's trouble, then Christ comes back to the earth, and he raises up at that point, Daniel 12, not just tribulation saints who have died during the Great Tribulation, but he raises up Old Testament saints, and then tribulation saints and church saints will all sit down together for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And um, so, again, there's just dozens and dozens of passages that he's ignoring to come to that conclusion. And and most people, what they do when when they hear just a singular argument that I gave, and in my series on eschatology, I give 10 reasons for a pre-tribulational rapture, but just that singular argument, they say, well, then there's no millennium. It's just not going to happen. And that's how they get around it. Because if you just take it at face value, what God says here at the end of the revelation, where Satan, who had been bound for a thousand years, is suddenly loosed. And it says when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. And he'll, he'll, he'll have this war, and God, of course, will put it down immediately. Fire just comes out from heaven, destroys all, destroys them all, and then Satan is forever uh, placed in the lake of fire, where the false prophet and the antichrist had already been for a thousand years, because hell is forever. It's not annihilationism; it continues and it continues. So, when you just take the plain reading of it, if everyone is in a glorified body, you have no one to rebel. However, if tribulation saints enter into the millennial reign as saved people and they're eternally secure, but they have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren because people live for basically a thousand years during that time frame, as I show in that series, God's Prophetic Schedule, their children and grandchildren will have to make decisions for Christ, but not everyone will, even with Jesus reigning on the earth. And people say, how is that possible? It's no less possible than when he literally physically walked on the earth, did miracles right before people's eyes, and they still rejected him, and some attributed his miracles to the devil himself. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that's 843-525-1859. Let's stay with the calls. I believe we have Keith live with us, Pastor Carl. Good morning, Keith. You're live with Pastor Carl. Good morning, Dr. Brogy. Um, uh, first, I'd like to say I'm thankful that I can pick a phone up and call you and ask you questions. I appreciate you. I appreciate your ministry. Um, and all you do for for the Lord. Uh, I have a question. I'm in your study on Revelation, the book of Revelation, and uh, 
My question is, uh, in set chapter 17, uh, I recall you making a statement that the this new world religion will be the glue that holds things together for for all of this in the first three and a half years. Uh, my question is, how big a role do they will they play in um, in bringing this one world government together and uh, um, I believe they'll probably have a role in hunting down true Christians. And if you could just, I'll get off and listen to your answer on this. And I appreciate you so much. Hey, Keith, thanks for your encouragement and thanks for your prayers. Keith is calling this morning from Kentucky. We're glad to have him on the program. Uh, Yes, there's coming a time, of course, after the church is raptured. Uh, There's a space of time. We don't know how long it is. It appears to be a short time, weeks, days, months. Uh, but there will be a one-world ruler who will step up to the plate. And, of course, the world will be looking for leadership. There will be millions of people who are missing disaster that has come across the earth, economic disaster. Um, there's going to be all kinds of <clears throat> a heartache that will happen when, you know, people are flying planes and driving cars and all of a sudden there's no one there to pilot those vehicles and, I mean, it's just going to happen so fast. People don't know they're going to what what happened. And I think part of what we're seeing happening today is a preset for the coming Great Reset. Um, even these um, Navy and Marine pilots who have seen these aircraft that are beyond belief, uh, some of whom that have been filmed um, in terms of these flashes of light, I take that that that's de- demonic activity, because there'll be a reason that people will have all these Christians, these troublesome people have been removed from the earth by these aliens. And so we see this increase in alien sightings, and it's really, it goes in accordance with 1947, right before the year that Israel is made a nation, but they're well into the plans for that to happen. Of course, Harry Truman uh, was the first president, to really affirm the first nation, the United States affirmed that Israel was indeed an independent nation. And so, you know, as we approached Israel's time of becoming a nation, it's almost like the demonic world could see, hey, that means we're in the latter days, we're in the final final time frame, which means the rapture must be that closer because Israel has to be back in the land uh, for the final prophetic schedule to unfold. And it's just been growing and growing and growing. And now it's gone from like these people are wacko who say they see these objects and so forth to like, hey, there's something to it. And our own government is not denying it. Um, With all that said, this one world leader will step up to the plate. And in the first half of the tribulation, we see a pluralism amongst the religions of the world. And again, how far into the actual great reset, how far will the preset extend before um, God raptures the church? We don't know. No one knows the day or the hour. We do know we're in the final time frame. And so what's interesting is, for instance, just less than a year ago, last November 2022, the Pope gathered in Kakistan, you know, hundreds and hundreds of religious leaders from across the planet. They signed a document where they denied, the Pope denied, um, by signing the document, the uniqueness of Christ, and he was the only way to salvation. And this has been 
going on for some while for the last three popes and different meetings meetings they've had, but it's come to a head point. So what will happen is what we saw in Kakistan, there will be a gathering, a uniting of all the religions of the world. Christ will be no different from Buddha or uh, Muhammad or any other religious leader you can think of. People are, by nature, spiritual. Uh, The scripture speaks, however, that everything that's spiritual is not spiritually good. And so I would say a major component of the glue will be indeed religion and the religions of the world. There'll be other aspects. There'll be a governmental glue. There'll be a one world government. And so we see this whole movement through the World Economic Forum, through WHO, that really wants to be able to control the nations of the world over health issues and other things, this move towards globalism. Uh, so there will be a governmental glue. Uh, there will certainly be a economic glue. And one of the great things that I think is happening is this move towards um, digital money. And even our own president, I forgot the executive order number, but Uh, He issued an executive order shortly after he came into office. And by the way, Joe Biden, his his involvement with the World Economic Forum goes back prior to his even serving eight years as the vice president of the United States. It goes back to his time as a senator. So they meet every year for a couple of days in, in Davos, and they've had this ongoing plan to bring the nations of the world together into a global government. And one of the things I think that will happen will be the economies of the world will implode. And if the United States economy implodes, so will the other economies of the world because they're glued to us. Even China, uh, they have become a major world power, but we are the people who are giving them the money to make them a major world power. Just walk into Walmart and just about everything says made in China. And we continue to buy from them and ignore American-made products sometimes in the process because it's cheaper. Of course it's cheaper. They're paying people a dollar an hour. They're like slaves. And so I say all that to say that if the U.S. economy implodes, then this whole idea of digital money will be, like, easy to adapt. Because what will happen is, is instead of having cash, and a lot of people think, well, you know, I was talking to my brother yesterday up in Vermont. They're in the midst of uh, just terror with water. Uh, he lives on top of a mountain, and he can't get off his mountain. He said there's a, a ditch that's like you could put 10 cars in it. It's so deep. And you get down to the bottom of the mountain, the roads are all washed away, and it's just really a, it's a mess what's happening in Vermont with all the rain that they had yesterday and the continued rain that they're going to have today. And so... People, but we were talking, he said, you know, yeah, Carl, I, I don't ever really use cash. I said, I don't either. I almost like never have a dollar in my pocket. I use my credit card. Of course, I pay them off in full every month. And if you've taken my financial course, we talk about how to live within your God-given means. And so for a lot of people say, oh, I don't have a problem with digital money, but you will. Because what will happen is, is they'll be able to basically um, follow every single transaction that you make. You won't even be able to have a yard sale and sell something. Someone gives you $10 for something, you can go spend it on something. No, everything's going to be digital. Therefore, everything will be taxed. Oh, you, you've bought two steaks this month. Uh, that's your limit. You can't have a third one. Uh, so your, your, your digital transfer won't work at Walmart because you've already overused your allocation. They'll be able to control every aspect. 
And this will be a perfect biometrical uh, transition when the Antichrist in the middle of the tribulation changes the game plan from a multiplicity of religions to a singular religion. And at that point, that is the cement. We go past glue to cement. You either acknowledge the Antichrist and worship him or you die, your head is cut off, you're executed. Uh, that's what Revelation 21 through 4 teaches. So um, what we see in chapters 17 and 18 of the Revelation is religious Babylon that will at some point in the Great Tribulation period become very singular in its focus, and we see economic Babylon, and we're seeing the presets for this coming Great Reset. We talk about the Great Reset, but really, in some ways, they're presets. And how far will we go? I don't know. Uh, no one knows. Maybe we'll see digital money in the next two to three years. We don't know. But if we do, you can see how the stage is being set for the coming Antichrist and the coming globalistic emphasis. Great question that Keith from Kentucky asked. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning. Our next question comes from Leon. He is asking about Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. He says, what does it mean that the former things will not be remembered in the new heavens and earth? Yeah, so uh, it's important when you look at carefully Isaiah that you ask, where is he in his prophecy? And, of course, when you come to the latter chapters, he's dealing largely with the millennial reign of the Messiah, which he describes He describes the, the earth during the millennial reign as a new heavens and a new earth, not to be confused with the Apostle John's use. Remember, Words and phrases and terminology find their meaning in their context. And so it's not to be confused with John's usage. Uh, And so he's describing in in one sense a new like earth because it's the time of the regeneration. And God is going to transform the earth that will have been beat up from one end to the other as you look at the, uh, the judgments that come as seals, trumpets, and bowls. Uh, the, the earth is going to be devastated, but the Lord will rejuvenate it, and men will live, you know, if a man only lives to 100 years, he's considered accursed. He came somehow under the judgment of the Messiah. His days will be like the days of a tree, the same prophet says. And so he's dealing here with um, this coming time, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard of her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100. A youth and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. Now, this can't be the eternal state because in the eternal state where God creates a new heaven and a new earth, uh, if you remember in the close of the Revelation, as you come to Revelation chapter 21, uh, he said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, 
I think you can take the position that verse 17 could refer to that, and then he's jumping back into the millennial reign. But we know the verses that follow can't refer to the new heaven and the new earth because he talks about death. There's no death in the future. When the new Jerusalem, which is where your loved ones are, it's called the Father's house. It's given by many different titles in Scripture. But there's no death in that future place. And so for him to speak of death and yet him describing a new earth, I think it's best, as I've really given this a lot of thought, that this is really a reflection of uh, the millennial earth. And the things that will not be brought to mind are the things that they had suffered for decades, for millennia, in terms of Jerusalem and the people of Israel, constantly persecuted people. And he said, there's going to be rejoicing among my people. There'll no longer be the sound of weeping and the sound of crying. Why? Because Messiah will literally be ruling upon the earth. Now, some have taken the former things will not be remembered or come to mind that when you get to heaven, uh, you won't remember certain things. And I suppose if God wants to orchestrate our brains in that way, that he could certainly do that. And the question that sometimes will come up is, you know, if I'm in heaven and I'm saved and, and my brother or my sister or my dad or my mom or my grandmother is not there, how can heaven be a place of great rejoicing? Well, remember, uh, you will be in a glorified body. You will be in a resurrected body. You will see things in a way that you've never seen things before. We look through a a mirror dimly. We're going to see very clearly at some future time. It's going to be different. In fact, you might just say, God, what you did to my brother, to my sister, to my cousin, to my next-door neighbor, to my coworker was righteous, and it deserves praise. And so um, could God blot out some memory? He could, but contextually, that's not the focus of the verses. The things that will be remembered no more is what follows in verses 18 through 25. Um, And so I think you have to put it in the context. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl on today's Bible line. Our next question comes from Mary. She would like, her daughter actually has a question and would like to know how a loving God could allow rape and mistreatment of children. Well, um, when God created the world and when he created man, he created us as free moral agents. God certainly could have made Adam and Eve as robots where all they could do was obey God. Yes, God, I will obey you. What is your next command? But no, they are made in the Imago Dei. That's Latin for the image of God. And one aspect of being made in the image of God is you are a free moral agent. To be a free moral agent, you have to have a choice. And so in Genesis 2, God laid a choice from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And they chose to rebel, and we chose to rebel with them. You know, we're not victims of Adam. That's not how it's presented in Scripture. Like, we're downstream of Adam, and so we're born with his fallen nature that he inherited through rebellion. Actually, Romans 5, 12 says, when Adam sinned, all sinned. We sinned in and with Adam. And that's why we're born with a fallen nature, with a propensity not to do good but to do evil. But people are still free moral agents. They can choose yes 
and receive Christ as their Savior, or they can choose no. Does God like when a child is mistreated or some individual is raped? He hates that. He despises that. He can't stand that. And especially when children are harmed. And I think of what's happening through this whole transgender movement and the pharmaceuticals and the medical community that is making billions of dollars off of these little children who are being told sometimes by their parents, oh, yeah, you must be a girl. The child's five years old. And, you know, and now we've created, there are two states in this union where if a child wants to go and get his body mutilated, if they can get to that state, those children will be protected. And they can go through the procedure, and the parents will have absolutely nothing to say about it. This is like evil beyond evil. So what does God think about it? Well, when you read a passage like Matthew chapter 18, you see God's supernatural care but he doesn't overrule the free will of man. Truly, I say to you, unless one is converted and becomes like children, you'll not enter the kingdom of God. So little children who are unable to understand the gospel, if they die prematurely, they go home to be with the Lord. Some of you listening have lost an infant. You've lost even a baby in gestation, and you've miscarried. You'll see that child someday in heaven. That child will go to heaven even if you don't because you're an unbeliever. Um, But then, so he says, whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So he's affirming God never uses, God the Son never uses an illustration that has theological error in it. So for Jesus to liken the kingdom of God, which is synonymous with the kingdom of heaven, as you put the various gospels together, which is a picture of our future eternal state, for him to liken little children to have that kind of status before God in it not to be true, then he's not the truth, but he is. But then he is. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, there's different kinds of millstones. There's a kind of millstone that... um, a woman would use in her house to grind her, her grain and to make flour. But the word that's used here, literally, if you have the New American Standard with marginal notes and when there is uh, some highlight in the Greek text that a Greek reader would read, oh, I see the word that he's using for millstone. He's not speaking of a millstone that a woman uses to grind wheat with. He's actually using a different word that is also uh, called a millstone. And so when there's some um, issue in the Greek text that needs illumination, and yet you're trying to do a word-for-word translation without paraphrasing, you go out in the margin, it says L-I-T, which means literally. You go down to verse 6, literally a millstone turned by a donkey. In other words, he's talking about a major millstone. When I bring people to Nazareth, we uh, go to a place called Nazareth Village, which is kind of a reconstruction of a first century uh, town and what it would be like. In fact, there's a lot of artifacts there that go back to the day of Christ. And in either case, um, we see a millstone that would be turned by a donkey, a heavy, heavy millstone. And so God is saying, this is what I think about these people 
who are telling little five-year-olds that you might not be a boy, you could be a girl. Listen, that's causing people to stumble. God hates that. This is like evil beyond evil. And these people are going to meet God in judgment. You know, we have a president who has opened wide the borders to this nation. And people are streaming in by the millions. Millions of people have come in. We had a secure border, as secure as you could humanly make it, in the last administration, and he undid everything he did. And what's happening, among other things, as I brought out in a sermon six months ago, uh, human sex trafficking, these little children, 10, 11, 12, 13 years of old and higher, who are being sold as sex slaves here in this country to wicked, evil people. And God hates us. God absolutely detests it. But this is not the day of judgment. It's in the future. But I would say all this to say that even if someone came under this abuse, the book of Romans reminds me where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. God is bigger than the sin that may be brought upon a person where God can still reach down and save that child, that teenager, and bring them to a saving relationship and to find real meaning and healing in life. Good question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl. Our next question comes from Ophelia. She has a daughter who was raised in the church but has since walked away. Although she says she still believes in God, she asks why she should come back to church when there are people who are in the church who judge other people outside of the church for their sin. Um, For example, one of her previous pastors had an affair. How should Ophelia respond? Well, I would say to Ophelia that there are hypocrites in the church. Jesus said the wheat and the tare would be mixed together until the time of judgment. And not only are there hypocrites in the church, there are believers who act hypocritical. If you read in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he confronts the apostle Peter, the apostle Paul confronts the apostle Peter, who was displaying hypocrisy by the way he was dealing with Jews and Gentiles. So any one of us can potentially act as a hypocrite and even do something wicked like this pastor did, which brought great shame to that local fellowship wherever this person's calling from, and a lot of uh, disillusioned people. But again, when the scriptures are taught, and this is why it's important that we be in a sound church and that we be in a church where the pastor is leadership qualified, and many times they're not. I was dealing with a pastor recently, and um, he was discussing this church, and uh, this particular church that he was discussing had a pastor who was 100 pounds overweight. Of course he wasn't leadership qualified. Why? Because a pastor has to exercise self-control. And if he's not exercising self-control, he's out of control. And so it's important that we make sure that, A, a pastor is leadership qualified, and two, recognize that if anyone, myself included, thinks that I couldn't commit some horrible, heinous sin, then we're tempting the devil to tempt us. Let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. But I would say fundamentally, your daughter Ophelia is doing her theology by experience and not by scripture. And so you need to drive her back to the authority. Yes, she believes in God. And the reason she believes in God is because every man believes in God. All men have a knowledge of God, Romans 1, 18 through 20. 
All men know God through creation, and all men, Romans 2.15, know God through conscience, and, and men know God even through his care over the creation. He causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. So all men know there's a God. Now, people can say they're atheistic, but they're not. They're lying to themselves. Lay that aside. Um, one of her issues is she's looking for a reason, no doubt, to justify her own immorality. I can almost guarantee that your daughter has compromised herself morally, either through drugs, alcohol, sex, something. And so she's looking for an excuse not to believe. And she needs to step back and say, look, everything I believe is based on something. Either read it in a book, I made it up, someone told me, but just believing something doesn't make it true. You can believe two plus two equals five. Doesn't matter how sincere you are, you'd be sincerely wrong. I mean, look at the people that Paul was dealing with in the book of Romans, the 10th chapter, his Jewish brethren, who his heart is broken over the nation of Israel because while he came to his own, his own received him not, uh, but as many as received him, to them he gave um, the right to be called children of God for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. And so he's describing these people who in the prior verse in ten two says they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. In other words, if sincerity could save a person, these people would be saved. But you can be sincere and you can be sincerely wrong. It doesn't matter how much you believe two plus two equals five and how sincere you are, you're wrong. So your daughter needs to ask, and answer, and you need to help her, is the Bible the only book God ever wrote? On the one hand, like the existence of God, she knows that it is. How does she know it? Because the Word of God is living and sharper and active than a two-edged sword. But you can also give a sound apologetic. I wrote a, a chapter in an apologetic series. I wrote a number of chapters for Ken Ham, but one of them is how to prove the Bible is true. And that chapter I put in booklet form, and I'd be happy if you call after we go off the air, we'll send you a copy. Um, but it goes through five proofs, and we give it to everyone who comes to our Meet the Pastor meeting, which we host twice a month for visitors. Um, but we know the Bible is the only book God wrote. And so if it's the only book God wrote, he's going to answer your daughter's questions. And so people who say, well, you're judging me, and that's probably what she's doing. In her mind, she's thinking, he's judging me. What is he judging her about? She's probably involved in some sexual sin if she's a teenager, which has become the spirit of the age. And she doesn't like that Scripture speaks against that. And so I would just say to her, well, actually, even this pastor, even if he lived as a hypocrite and he preached against sexual immorality, which he himself committed, it doesn't change the truth of Scripture. Scripture says, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, holy ones. That's what we are. We're saints. We're holy ones. We didn't earn it. We were gifted that status. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which is not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. And then he says in Ephesians 5, 5, for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So again, could a Christian commit sexual immorality? Yes. But if it's your lifestyle and your direction, let no one deceive you with empty words. 
God's wrath is coming on an unbelieving word for these world for these very things. And, you know, and people who are deceived don't know they're deceived. And so, you know, you present passages like the one I just read or 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, or do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. God can save anyone out of any kind of lifestyle. But you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So your daughter needs to put any belief she has into the mirror of Scripture. It's not enough to believe that God exists, that demons believe and tremble. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And she can say, well, I believe in Jesus. Well, again, so do the demons. Uh, There's a lot of Americans who believe about Jesus. They just don't believe in Jesus. And so your daughter has a moral lifestyle issue that's keeping her away from the Lord. And sadly, you know, you can bring kids to church, and sadly, pastors baptize them all the time as lost people. And they never even find out if they understand the gospel. And they're given these little phrases, invite Jesus into your heart and accept Christ or commit your life to him. Phrases found nowhere in Scripture. And so we use these undefined metaphors to try to represent the gospel when they haven't sometimes heard the gospel and they haven't truly been converted. And that's why they walk away from the faith because they're lost. And so anyway, I hope that helps. If you live locally, I don't know where Ophelia lives. See if your daughter will come with you to meet the pastor. The next one is the last Sunday in July it will be at 5.30 in the evening. It lasts about an hour. And if someone else is listening to me and you're unsure of your salvation or you have some family member or friend that you would like to bring with you, bring them to meet the pastor. They answer a couple questions for me so I can get to know them, and they can write down any questions they want to ask, including the ones that your daughter is asked, and we'll answer them by God's grace. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, Pastor Carl. This next question comes in as anonymous. Uh, But the question comes from your response to the borders with the question with Mary earlier. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So they write, is Dr. Brogy worried about being too far right wing and following right wing propaganda and only reaching half of the country by being too political? (laughs) Good question. No, I'm not worried about being biblical. And if a biblical issue is described as a right right wing issue, then so be it. If, if I'm, you know, speaking against the president who's in favor and he says he has the backs of little children, little boys who are being castrated and little girls who are being mutilated and having mastectomies, and you're saying I'm being too political, then so be it. Because whenever the political realm intersects with the moral realm, a pastor of God is to have enough spiritual backbone to stand up and to speak up and to deal with that issue. And if he doesn't, he's being disobedient. So when you talk about borders, I'm talking about a biblical issue. Who established borders? God did. God established borders. And so, uh, for instance, Paul, when he addresses, you know, the um, Athenians, he speaks to the fact that he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth 
having determined their appointed bounds, their appointed times in the boundaries of their habitations. God established borders. Just read the book of Numbers. Just read Leviticus 19. Now, does that mean that people can't be welcomed into a nation? Not at all. In fact, God tells Israel that when the alien comes into your land, remember there was a time when you were an alien, when you were living in Egypt. So you treat them with compassion and not with a spirit of arrogance. But did the alien fall under the dictates of the Israeli government and God's way of running the nation? Yes, they did. And if they ignored them, look, we're letting people, 7 million, Lindsey Graham said last night, 7 million have come over the border. I don't know the exact number, but there's, there's over 100 nations now. We're not just talking about people from Mexico. Over 100 nations have walked over our border. And these people are just being put through. Look, there is coming a time when there will be 10 kings. 10 kings from the former Roman Empire. And they are going to rule the world until the Antichrist will step up over them. And it's interesting that when you look at the Council of Rome, they've divided the world into 10 parts. I covered this in my Revelation series. And one aspect of one of those 10 regions is making Canada, the United States, and Mexico one region. I think that's interesting. I, I just think that's interesting. Now, whether it will flesh out that way in the end, I don't know. But I do know God established nations. And if we have no borders, then we have no nation. What makes the United States of America the United States of America? Among other things, we have a constitution and a declaration of independence that if you read it carefully, it's based on a Judeo-Christian ethic. It doesn't mean that everyone involved in the founding of our nation was born-again Christians, but many of them were, and those who were not were influenced by born-again Christians. Look, the United States of America will not be free if we don't have a constitution and bylaws. Look, my son spent eight years dealing with um, South Carolina schools trying to have a three-hour course that was already on the books, and who was fighting them? Clemson University, uh, USC, they were fighting them that they didn't want to teach a three-hour course on the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the Federalist Papers, and a letter written by Dr. King uh, in the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, why? Because there are socialists up there. And unless your child has his head screwed on right, they're going to receive a socialistic education when they go to our South Carolina schools. And now he is trying to do the same in North Carolina, what took seven years before they actually got it to the floor for a vote, and the governor signed it and invited him in because he wrote the legislation for Senator Larry Grooms, who, who sponsored it. He's doing the same in North Carolina. It's been passed in the House. Who's opposing him? The North Carolina schools. Why? Because the UNC system is socialistic. You can take a course on Lady Gaga at USC. You can take a course on tailgating. But you couldn't take a course on the documents that men and women have shed their blood in defending this nation. They don't want you to know those documents. That's what makes the United States free. And the United States is not the author of freedom. God is the author of freedom. 
And there are certain principles that must be enacted for a nation to know that freedom, and those principles are being eradicated. So if you call that right wing, those are biblical principles that are intersecting in the culture, and I'm going to preach it and teach it, and if someone doesn't like it, so be it. You know, that's their problem, not mine. But in doing so, I'm leading people to Christ. How so? When I speak against homosexuality and transgenderism and abortion and um, not having defined borders, I'm teaching what Scripture says. And the function of the law is to lead people to Christ, to show them, ah, there's something wrong in the way I think. And there's something wrong in this caller, and I'm glad you asked, but there's something wrong in the way you think. To think, because if you've ever heard me, then you know these are not just like some isolated right-wing issue. I'm not into that. I'm interested into what the Scripture says. And when people see the law, they see their fallenness and their need for a Savior. And if people can't see that, they have an unregenerate mind. They haven't been born again. They have a form of godliness, but they've denied the power thereof. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, our next question comes from Micah. In Ezekiel 37 and 43, is the prophet expressing that God will come back to the earth? I always thought that it was our Savior because I do know there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Yeah, so um, there's uh, two aspects of a coming, quote-unquote, new earth. There's a rejuvenated earth, and so remember the disciples said, oh, Lord, we've left everything to follow you, and he said, well, you may have, but the fact is is that you uh, will be blessed a hundred times over, and in the future reju- rejuvenation, regeneration, And that's when the earth is remade for the Messiah's reign. And if you have never studied this, I have a course in the Millennial Reign of the Messiah, a course, a sermon. It's in my series on the Revelation. It's also in God's prophetic schedule and two different sermons, and I deal with different aspects. But um, I give six reasons for the fact that the Messiah will literally physically reign on the earth. So when you're in that section of Ezekiel in the latter chapters, he's dealing with the Millennial Reign of the Messiah. He's not talking about the new heaven and the new earth where there's no sin. He's talking about the millennial reign when the Messiah will literally, physically, actually rule on the earth for a thousand years. Anyway, we're out of time today. These questions have always been good. Sorry if we didn't get to your question, but God willing, there'll be another Tuesday when we can address some of these. Have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ.